From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. blackness. To blackness. I am excited to have today's guest join us. In this episode, I am in conversation with Keevan Adonis Brown. He is a photographer, poet, archivist, and associate professor of rhetoric and writing with a particular focus on African diaspora and specifically the Caribbean. Keevan's portfolio of works includes a range of traditional academic publications and research projects, born digital and hybrid projects, poetry and essay publications, original fine art and documentary photography, contemporary art, and local and international exhibitions. In addition, he is the author of two books, Tropic Tendencies, Rhetoric, Popular Culture, and the Anglophone Caribbean, which came out in 2013, and most recently, High Mass, Carnival and the Poetics of Caribbean Culture, which came out in 2018 and won the Bocas Literary Prize in 2019. A compelling aspect of Keevan's work operates at the intersection of rhetoric, literatures of the Caribbean, visual arts, and vernacular philosophy, wherein he privileges the imagination as an act of freedom and strives to produce work that makes that critical imagining possible. I am sure you are all curious to learn more about the man behind the lens and how he plays mass too. Welcome, Keevan. Thank you so much, India. I am especially experiencing Carnival Tabanka. I'm not sure if it's because of the weather being here in the Northeast in February, but I'm so excited to chat with you and discuss your latest projects, including High Mass, all things Caribbean and Carnival, and your personal journey to doing this work. So are you ready? Yes, I am. Let's go. All right, let's get into it. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. Even as a scholar, photographer, poet, and archivist, your books, poems, and photographs endeavor to amplify the lived experiences and perspectives of African-descended people, particularly of the Caribbean, through a close study of Caribbean spiritual and cultural expressions and performative identity making. So tell us, how did you become interested in doing the work you do today? Well, India, from the perspective of my creative and scholarly work, so where they intersect, I would have to say that that began when I was in my second year in grad school. I had made the transition from studying literature and wanting to do a dissertation just on Derek Walcott's work and thinking about Walcott, loving Walcott, trying to see if I could emulate his particular style and then figure out a style of my own. But then I realized that that was a little bit narrow in terms of what I thought literature could be and what literature wanted to be from the standpoint of what I could do. So instead of focusing just on literature, I decided to broaden my study to involve Caribbean rhetoric, not only defining rhetoric, but going and looking for excavating those aspects of Caribbean culture. And in doing that, I started listening to even more Caribbean music, started looking at more Caribbean art, started doing these things deliberately from the perspective of what is their rhetorical import. And looking at them through those lenses meant that that I was engaging in an impossibility. So a lot of what you'll hear me say about Caribbean rhetoric and about the work that I do is grounded in impossibility 
And I think what would be helpful for our audience who may be unfamiliar with the different types of analyses and epistemologies within literature, can you explain, well, what is Caribbean rhetoric? Well, Caribbean rhetoric has to do with the range of expressions, whether spoken, heard, performed, that enable us to articulate our particular motives and imperatives. So some of those motives and imperatives involve freedom, self-determination, resistance, grievance, joy. So all these different aspects of cultural expression that embody a particular social formation or set of social formations like Caribbean people broadly considered or Trini, like myself, Grenadians, Jamaicans, Bajans, Haitians, the Hispanophone, the Francophone, the Lusophone traditions. And that exists throughout the Caribbean. Right. That includes, of course, what we hear in the music what we read in the literature, whether it's poetry, novels, nonfiction, Caribbean speculative fiction, the entire range of expressions that are available to us. Visual, it's verbal, it's nonverbal. And that's how it begins to engage all of our senses. We begin to feel it, think it, understand it, become one with it all. And still be able to respond in a visceral kind of way. Give us an example of what you mean. So you feel it in your bones, right? You feel it in your skin. You get goosebumps, right? Which is to say in Trinidad, we'll say our pores raised because we feel we feel it on a visceral level, a spiritual level, a psychic, metaphysical level. But it also helps us to ground and situate ourselves. So we're able to say, okay, I am Caribbean, whatever Caribbean means at a given point. And because those meanings shift, I could be Trini today, I could be Caribbean American tomorrow, I could be African American this other the day I could be pan-Caribbean. And all of those different aspects of my dimensions come into play to show and demonstrate my, my multidimensionality, my complexity, and that of the people from which I'm descended. I think your definition around rhetoric is helpful, and particularly Caribbean rhetoric for the audience, because it makes sense in terms of the work that you currently do and how it plays a role in how you show up and the performative aspects of your own identity and the ways in which you're talking about these different modalities of expression, whether it's through the visual, the verbal, the nonverbal, the written, etc., I always go to folks to think back to their childhood and to figure out and discuss, well, what is it or who motivated you to amplify this particular perspective? I mean, you say it a little bit, but it's very cultural. I mean, the music, Calypso and Soka, there's a lot of story. There's a lot of sound. There's all these integrations of meanings, things that are in the subtext, too, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we're pulling from. What goaded you to do this sort of work, understanding that there are certain things that are happening culturally that just inform your everyday life? Oh, man, what a beautiful question that is. You know, one of the simplest definitions of rhetoric that I've used with my students in class is that rhetoric is the art of who says what to whom, under what conditions, and to what effect. But I know that that is a very, very inadequate kind of definition of rhetoric. I always couch that within this larger, more undefinable, more nebulous space. One way to navigate that is to ground it in family, to ground it in not only language, but where that language is located. Okay, give us an example. Things that my grandmother has said to me and my father's side, who was as much a mother to my mother as her mother was to her. And because of that sense of being able to simultaneously 
grounded in voices that I know, voices I can remember, recordings that I have made, and voices that I had only to imagine because I could only hear stories about them. I was thinking about how could I start making connections, making myself some kind of a bridge between what is known, what is unknown, what is thought, expressed, unexpressed, and unthought. And I saw all of that activity as being who we are without having to perform for a particular audience. And all I did was I just expanded that universe to include not just my grandparents, not just my mom and my dad, not just my cousins, those suggested relations that connect us, those hidden meanings that connect us. The hidden meanings don't necessarily mean that they're rhetorical, but I think the way we seek out those meanings and try to express those meanings, give a sense of what that rhetoric is. I think that's also the meaning, or at least the symbolism behind carnival. There's always Mm -hmm. this question of who's the audience Mm -hmm. and who's watching and who's watching me watch you watching, (laughs) (laughs) right? And I think your book, High Mass, does a really lovely job in trying to capture perspective and how is it that people are understanding and thinking about and performing meanings and interpreting meanings and applying meanings. One of the things about you, too, and your work is your name. (laughs) And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, right? But particularly your middle name, Adonis, God (laughs) of beauty and desire. And I think most people think about the commercialization of carnival around beauty and desire. And Mm -hmm. here you study its complex beauty. You specifically open with the poem Ash Wednesday. So getting back to that conversation around meaning, because my interpretation, you're goading the reader to consider what it is that we do in the season of Lent. When the mm. fete is done, when the daily reality rears its head and mm. we're left to contend with blatant poverty and inequality. Mm. Right. And then simultaneously, the ways in which the church encourages us to consider deprivation and salvation at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so we're now the beauty and the desire of this beautiful country too, one of the <laughs> largest Caribbean carnivals in the world where beauty and desire is now seen and experienced differently. So as a tour, you're like, oh, this is great. And then Ash Wednesday, and it's like, wow, who's picking up all of the trash that's on the street? That's right. I think about carnival as an event, as a thing that we produce for tourists and for citizens on a certain level, but an event nevertheless. So the audience for that particular event are going to be different from those who observe and engage with mass. And what would you say is the distinction between Carnival and mass. So I try to make the distinction between carnival as the event and mass as a mentality. Mass as a way of life. Mass as a worldview. This is about consciousness. How do I explain people who have never experienced something what that something is? And I think that attempt to do an impossible thing is what is at the heart of mass. Because mass is not, in my view, what freedom looks like. What mass is, is an attempt to say, this is the desire for freedom. Because we we exist in the absence of freedom. An articulation of our awareness of freedom's absence. Of course, because we humans are contradictory beings. It's an act of consciousness that says we know we are not free, but we love it anyway. And the loving it anyway is a recognition of that contradiction. And bring it back to how your name, 
Adonis and your work intersects with your identity. Which is to say we can engage with the grotesque and the beautiful simultaneously, recognizing both, but also transcending to aim for something that is sublime, something that exists beyond our reach. So how do you explain the feeling of Tabanka for those who wish and desire to express their articulation of freedom? So my grandmother, who named me both Kievan and Adonis, and I'm still working through in my in my subsequent projects <laughs> what her intentionality could have been because she, she died before I was able to find out. But as I put different pieces together, almost kind of like a carnival costume, right? Trying to arrange certain ideas of what constructs me or what was used to construct my personality even before I kind of like coalesced into Kievan and Adonis Brown. I'm thinking about how do we, as a people find our way through. So navigating that is part of what to me is is at the heart of mass. Mass is the navigation. Mass is the grounding. Mass is the vehicle. Mass is the way of seeing the world, our way of seeing the world. And so what do you mean by that? And of course, we miss the point oftentimes that every carnival is the last carnival, which is why we always feel that to banker. Gosh, I wish. Oh gosh, carnival. When it coming back, carnival. Because the carnival that you're wishing for is something that has already passed. And then we are also celebrating the symbolism of the legacy of trauma that we continue to contend with. In many ways, it's an idea of a freedom that you hope to return, but that you recognize as part of your history. Is that implicit, soulful remembrance of having been free, having once been free, because I feel it every day. Okay, good. Well, um, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> yes, I feel it too. But I really appreciate your bifurcation, right, in making this distinction, or at least the analytics between mass and carnival. The similarities is around freedom and freedom of expression. But then your distinction on the flip side around, well, what is mass and playing mass? Then it makes it very significant when you have Juve and when you see the Jumbies and you see all of these other kinds of characters and ways in which people are possessing certain Mm -hmm. characteristics visually Mm -hmm. too, and how those are grounded in history and context that it's really about that freedom that you're talking about where, Mm -hmm. no, here are a group of people that were transported against their will that were enslaved, but then here they created something else. And it's amalgamation of different kinds of cultural practices and histories of all these people coming together. And this is how they're performing their desires around freedom and what freedom looks like in the face of systemic oppression and subjugation and that sort of thing. But again, I love this idea around the imaginings of freedom and how people Mm -hmm. perform it. For me, it's not a question, again, of the grotesque of the beauty. And I I think people often make a mistake when they try to to compare or contrast what we call traditional mass, right? Like, so Blue Devils, Jab Molassi, Moko Jambi, Midnight Robber, the Bull, the Bat, Pierre Grenade, the Borokit, to juxtapose them with what we think of as pretty mass. I feel like that is a mistake we often make because of the oversimplification of Carnival as an event. Because even though I make the determination that Carnival is an event and mass is a way of life, Carnival is still a very, very complex kind of event. I have made the point that what you're looking at is as haunting and 
potentially as troubling, deeply troubling, as those other forms that I've just named. Because what you're observing are these remnants of conquest being paraded in the streets. In essence, what you're observing, what you're witnessing, is this deliberative haunting the streets of a village, the streets of a town, that remind us, whether we want to be reminded or not, of legacies of conquest that precede even the arrival of Africans to these shores that precede the arrival of the indentured laborers from East India who had crossed the Kalapani, the Black Waters, in the very same way and braved the same and endured and suffered and died on the same waves that the Middle Passage had been taken to get here. That sort of helped embody what it means to be Caribbean, which means to always be coming. So all of that is occurring in this larger context of haunted images, haunted symbols. And even how people perform and contend with these legacies will look and feel differently in the pandemic. If you don't realize that you're celebrating in the midst of a memory of pain and hurt and suffering, then your recognition of the attempt to transcend unfreeing positions is going to be hampered. We're in a really interesting and precarious position right now to not just think about what Carnival has meant to us as this action of memory, this action of history, but also to think about how do we orient or reorient those attitudes toward history for a projection of this thing to come. But this idea of Carnival that may never be is a very real possibility because we might get the, we might get the event, but it might not do the kind of work that Carnival itself could do. In the book, you describe the moment where your doctor gave you a diagnosis of a treatable form of glaucoma. Mm -hmm. And so you speak a little bit about the ways you began to consider experiences of seeing. Mm -hmm. So as a photographer, what is it that you seek to see and envision? Mm -hmm. And what is it that you hope to capture? Well, I actually hope for the uncapturing of the things that end up making it into my frame. And I do this more deliberatively because I imagine this imperative to be free, to want to be free, and that whatever I observe is charged with that imperative. When I happen to get something, I'm allowed to make a photograph and to have something or someone in my frame. Part of what I want to do is to gauge the effect of uncapturing How do I then embody this liberatory, this emancipatory kind of ethos while trying to get a still image? Well, part of what I do is I try to imagine what is it that I do not see? What is it that eludes, constantly eludes the frame? What are the intentions? What are the motives that are operating that the lens itself is unable to record? So then what does it mean to capture? So the idea of capturing becomes this kind of language, this kind of discourse that I'm actively trying to resist. So I know that it's, it sounds contradictory, but that contradiction is part of what I'm thinking of as Caribbeanness. to be able to name a thing that is unnameable, to be able to feel a thing that is untranslated. So everything that I end up photographing or the work that I end up making is about reading ourselves, reading myself from a particular kind of absence and reading absence into the things that we end up making. So if I were to lose my sight, which I hope not to, what I would be able to see would transcend the seeable anyway. So I want to push back a little bit because I totally get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I think about the questions that I have also received as a person who is 
a sociologist and mm-hmm. ethnographer. There's something about my work that's also very personal and political. As a qualitative scholar, recognize that there are certain things about my own individual experiences and understanding about the social and cultural world that I live in and participate and traverse through that mm-hmm. informs even the topics, the themes that I'm choosing mm-hmm. to share. Mm-hmm. So then how is it that you as a photographer, as a Caribbean man, as a Caribbeanist photographer, how do you then try to create that balance when a critique could easily be, well, your lens is still myopic. It's not a wide angle because right. it's very much right. grounded in your Trinidadianness or yeah. your yeah. Trinidadian maleness or mm-hmm. all these other categories. For me, and this is what I do a good deal of in High Mass, because High Mass is a book that demands a certain kind of honesty in order to tell the story. It demands a certain kind of openness, a certain, a great deal of vulnerability in order for the story to be told. I admit to the myopia in a project such as that. And I think that is part of the key methodologically for me, to be able to say, look, I'm not trying to say anything universal about what it means to be Caribbean. Rather, what I'm doing is by turning the lens on myself and then using myself as a lens through which the Caribbean can be viewed or which particular Caribbean events or rituals can be viewed. Yeah, I'm acknowledging the limitations of being a man, being engaged in patriarchy, or at least in some ways still a beneficiary of patriarchy, and really just a kind of strange beneficiary. So what do you mean by strange beneficiary? On the one hand, I am engaged with trying to view, for example, Elijah Bless, trying to view Tracy Sankashalo on her own terms as she's performing Elijah Bless, as she's walking through the streets, performing, preparing, putting on a hoof, big hat, just dying to the world in order to bring this performance forward. But knowing that I'm seeing her through a lens that is masculine. All right. So then what is your process? So I have to then come to terms with my own masculinity, my own toxicity, my own guilt to be able to sort of not say what I'm seeing, but to really report on what Tracy's performance, as an example, forced me to see about myself. As you're looking at the subject, the subject is also looking back at you. And it's not a subject of the abyss. It's not this empty space. This is a space that is populated by intentions embodied by a person with a name that says, hey, you, I see you. And when you get that indictment of being seen, the sight of the person that you're trying to photograph, there's no escape for you. You can't run and hide. So you have to contend with your limitations. And then with the person, Tracy, what were your limitations? I don't even know for sure what Tracy's intentions were in that mass. What I do know and was able to report is that the guilt that one ought to feel when observing that violence that she was portraying is a demand for a kind of justice, a kind of coming, a kind of comeuppance. Looks like a confession on the page or a series of images that beg questions rather than simply present the subject. Okay, so I can see why then you solely highlighted certain performances. I didn't try to capture all of Carnival. And because I didn't try to capture all of Carnival, enable myself to focus on these very few, like Moko Jambi, the Blue Devil, the Elijah Bless, 
and Juve IET bands that I thought would, would enable me to do more effective work. So the claim of knowing the Caribbean, I tried to put that to bed really quickly. So even though I'm claiming Caribbean-ness, that Caribbean-ness is provisional. That then enables us to have conversations that are exciting, that are engaging, that don't emerge out of just opposition and say, well, you are wrong. And that kind of flexibility that I try to work into the projects that I, that I create is what I think maybe accounts for or makes up for, to the extent that it can, my own limitations as a single photographer telling a set of stories, but from a singular perspective. The road. My question for you, Kevin, is to whom or to what do you love and to whom or to what are you accountable? I'm accountable to this idea of, of my people, you know, and that idea of my people is on the one hand, very material and very grounded. It's thinking about the material existence of people of Caribbean descent, people who live in the Caribbean, people who connect to the Caribbean, who read themselves as Caribbean, trace their roots to this particular region, wherever they happen to be elsewhere in the world. But it's also a being accountable to something of a myth because of its mutability, because it changes and shifts in an even more narrow perspective a more personal idea of what one loves and is accountable to the work that I do. I hope my children can benefit from, and yet our distance precludes the kind of intimacy that I that I wish. And yet this is work I say that I have to do. And sometimes I'm harder trying as oriented toward the work because what I'm trying to achieve is supposed to outlive what I'm trying to achieve for the people to whom I'm accountable and who I love is gonna outlive them if I do it well. And it's funny because someone asked. You know, how were you able to do a work like High Mass with that level of openness? I recognize that being broken into an inconsolable is part of the work that I have to do. It's one thing to be a scholar, but then there's something else about being a creative. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what you described, at least from what I heard you say, is just really that experience of what it is to live life as a creative. The personal sacrifice that creatives make when we feel like there is this thing that we need to produce because this thing speaks to people, it reflects people, it represents people, it has meaning, it's going yeah. to resonate in this particular way. There's a legacy behind it. When you talked about love and just these projects that we engage in, the word that kept coming to mind is yearning. Indeed. You're not going to stop at high mass and there's right. going to be a thing after high mass and there's going to be this other thing. And there are things that are simultaneous to these <laughs> other things that are also existing because of that yearning. It's an important question and I'm glad you asked it because we often don't get asked that question, particularly when we're having these conversations. There is this aspect that... Our creative process is something that we sort of take for granted, but we don't really try to articulate how we navigate that yearning. I'm operating within this general sense of tobacco. We're using yearning for want of a better word, and not even for want of a better word. Let me amend that. We're using these words because no other words come to mind. So where there's Tabanco, where there's Fufuluto, where there's Taranji Banjo, where there's Bazodi, it's the sense of the untranslatable that places us in a space beyond where we are right now without having to explain ourselves. So there's the expression in the absence of explanation. So the yearning that we're thinking about is a yearning for how that space between words ends up being filled. 
in your article, Till Now Was Never, you use this great metaphor of birds in a cage Mm. to speak to the ways the placement of Caribbean people in the Caribbean context represents the everyday life and ideologies that have informed Caribbean histories Mm -hmm. and continue to shape Caribbean identities and personhood in both Caribbean people's imaginations and those of others. So how can the Caribbean break free from the birds in the cage? And is it possible to break free? And if so, what does that look like? I love that question. And I'm, I'm going to try to take a stab at it. And I'm going to remix the order by trying to see if I could answer question two first, question three second, and question one third, right? I'm going to foreground it by saying, well, yeah, right? The easiest question to answer is yes, it is possible. And this will, of course, make reference to what I was saying earlier in terms of engaging the impossible as an imperative. So to think about and imagine freedom is to often do so in the absence of what conceptions or any conception of what that freedom is going to look like. Okay, break it down for us a bit. That we have to be inclined and encouraged to imagine. So the idea of the Caribbean imaginary, the idea of engaging the imagination, the idea of projecting our conceptions and reconceptions, these reoriented versions of ourselves and what we want and how we can live our lives using the imagination as the vehicle for that, I think is absolutely essential. But where does then materialism and commercialization fit into these imaginings? It means, therefore, that we have to recognize that the material lives that we live and the frameworks that define these Caribbean lives, particularly like materialism, commercialization, commoditization, right? The idea of making things of people and viewing ourselves as things that are bought and sold. So even though after we were so-called emancipated, we were no longer, quote-unquote, slaves in the society, but we remain slave to society. We remain enslaved by society or by versions of society, ideas of society and operations, functions of society, structures that determine what a society is in such a way that our enslavement continues in different ways. Okay, so then conceptually, concept of freedom becomes more than just a feeling, but also an action. Freedom as this thing that ought to be imagined before it is enacted. Because I'm thinking as a rhetorician that you got to strategize to to, to be ready to act. You're not just acting reflexively. And there's something to be said for reflexive action, the knee jerk, the response, the hell no, I'm not doing this. But also there is that plotting of deliberate marinage, plotting of of deliberate self-delivery into freedom at whatever cost. And of course we know historically speaking, that that cost has come very high for us, right? It has meant our physical death, right? It has meant our inability to achieve certain things. It has meant on a very material level, your inability to get to get tenure, to get promoted, to get a job. You're projecting beyond the, the psychic limitation, the stresses that we deal with, the economic limitations that we face. We still have to contend with these discourses of really just kind of trying to make ends meet. In order for us to start making the impossibility of freedom and liberation somewhat more possible, it means to collectively and sometimes individually, but ultimately collectively, how are we imagining freedom together? Okay, Keevan, so what does that really entail for us? 
if we're imagining freedom as resulting in the same kind of discourses of power, of revenge, of operating in opposition to whiteness, in opposition to empire, in opposition to heteronormative restrictions, right? The violences of policing. If we're just trying to flip from a carceral state to a state where we incarcerate the incarcerator, then we're just reifying repeating, reinforcing the same discourses. And it's not change, it's just exchange. I'm saying recognizing that part of our impulses will include that kind of rationalization. It doesn't mean to ignore trauma. It means to to be inclined to think beyond that because our freedom, our liberation from this particular situation demands it. You know, when I think about the metaphor itself, I understand we can't just be in a process of just reifying the oppression if we're trying to say, well, we're going to like flip it in order to talk about our own freedom. Mm -hmm. But there's Mm -hmm. something to be said about the symbolism of the cage itself, whether the cage itself is a different are different forms of the imperialism and the domination and supremacist and all of these other kinds of structures, it almost seems to me that we have an awareness that there is a cage. And this is, I guess, for me, kind of thinking about it as a Caribbean person and my own imaginations. Because when I think about the political economy of things and the ways in which even small island nations like Grenada, for example, that although they were emancipated, they remain a former colony under the confines of this imperialist power that still dictates and still even on the currency, how very much about being free is still tied to the cage. So it's almost like we still have the cage and yet there's no door in the cage. So you could kind of poke, as the bird, you could kind of poke your head out of the cage. You can kind of pop in. But there's, so there's this interesting sense of freedom, but Mm -hmm. it's freedom. And I don't know if it's like a false consciousness of freedom, Mm -hmm. because you ain't Mm -hmm. really free if you're still tied to the cage of political economy and all of that. When you think of, like, I I own birds. I I thought that I wanted to be a bird man because I was trying to connect to my uncle who had kept birds, a Pico Platz, right? Which is a beautiful little gray bullfinch. And it sings beautifully and it, it has these really lovely arrangements. But I was not just reifying in a symbolic way. I was just, I kept a thing captive. And over time, I had to contend with whether or not it made sense to me to hold a thing captive as a way to connect to my traditions or under do the traditions altogether. Now, Caribbean people aren't birds because the birds don't build their own cages. Because we we, we have inherited not just the ideas and the language, but the frameworks of empire and have sought often to out-white white people, to outdo the oppression, to see better than the overseer. And in such a way, we have perfected the violences of colonialism over generations. This is precisely the project of imperialism and colonialism, to be able to operate in the absence of, or in the virtual absence of the so-called oppressor. Because according to what we know about hegemony, right? We don't police ourselves. And in effect, then there is no cage. Birds in a cage are birds in a cage. I remember the, the metaphor and the memory of actual birds being in actual cages, but we aren't either one of those things. Our songs are different. The way we engage ought to be different as well, right? So it means undoing the very notion of a cage. And it's here that I think why language then becomes so important in terms of the ways in which we're able to articulate getting out of the cage and being free. 
the linguists will tell us that we're never really outside of language. You know, we're always in that prison house of language. So to the extent that we even use language or dare to use language, dare to manipulate language, is also how we participate in changing, redesigning, modifying, upgrading the cage in which we live. You contend with this in your book, Tropic Tendencies, Mm. particularly around vernacular and how it is a source of active knowledge, memory, Mm -hmm. critical tension, and imaginative expansion that evokes presence, possibilities, and opposition to despair. So you basically are talking about that now. (laughs) And, you know, I think that with the passage of time, Mm -hmm. all things change, all things shift. So in thinking about the expansiveness of vernacular, just in the way you just talked about, Mm -hmm. where do you see possible shifts in Caribbean vernacular post-pandemic? And I say post-pandemic in the sense of, are we ever really going to be post? (laughs) (laughs) But in a place where we have some semblance of we as a people can actually be in community in some Mm -hmm. closer semblance as to what it once was. Well, I think we're in, strange as it may seem, and ironic as it's going to sound, we're in a very generative place right now, a place that demands a rethinking, demands a resetting, demands a reorientation. We don't have the privilege of doing the same thing that we've always done in the same kind of way. So even the the likelihood of repetition is kind of thrown off its balance. We are now in a position to have to rethink or think of new ways to be together. Please break it down for us a little bit more. Because we're we're always, or often, not always, engaged in this reach for the sublime, you're doing this kind of work in abstract forms. You're engaging life, Caribbean life, as abstraction. You're already engaging with it as a concept. You're engaging with it as something beyond the material, beyond the everyday, something that eludes and evades us in terms of language and description. So we already have it in its rawest form of intentionality, purest form of us being who we are in the midst of unfathomable constraints. We're coming out of not just an era of I can't breathe, but a history of not being able to breathe. We're engaging the abstraction because we have no, 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 no other recourse in this material setting than to engage the metaphorical, than to engage the metaphysical. So tangibly speaking, what do you think that would actually look like? I don't know exactly what form it will take. I know that there are other forms available to us. One of those forms is, of course, how we engage the archive, how we engage the digital art. Not just getting back in touch with your past, but thinking about what does the past actually teach us in contemporary ways? How do we engage the living aspect of archives rather than simply recognizing that they are aspects of the past. Can you give an example of what you mean by that? The work that I've been doing with my partner, Dawn Cumberbatch, as part of the Caribbean Memory Project, precedes the the pandemic. But in my view, it has become even more urgent to engage the archive digitally and analogically. Because even though we may never be post-pandemic, we're post-slavery, but not really post-slavery. We're post-emancipation, but not really post-emancipation. We're post-colonial, but we're really post-colonial. So the notion of the posts is this myth that we contend with, and we use digital culture to contend with that. We use the infusion of digital culture and folklore, the Dwen or the Mokojambi, to think about how we navigate archives. 
I totally get it. And so this, in effect, allows us to transcend the limitations of our bodies because our mind is free and expansive. This is a practice that historically we have had to master. We've been imagining freedom before we were enslaved. We didn't have to learn how to imagine freedom. I'm thinking that this gives us an opportunity to try to remember what we may have forgotten. But I like that I don't really know, but I can feel that there is a generative possibility, not just COVID fatigue, not just COVID exhaustion. There's something that exists for us beyond the limitations of what we are forced to engage. I enjoy the imaginative expansiveness Mm -hmm. as you're speaking, because Mm -hmm. it makes me think about two things. The point around time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? Mm-hmm. That again, time is this thing that it all depends on the perspective from which you're looking at it. Because mm-hmm. the moment that I finish saying these words, it's automatically the past. It has already passed. Absolutely. And so the kind of imaginative expansiveness that you must have in order to be able to think and project into the future and to anticipate certain things, Mm -hmm. you have to contend with so many other factors as it relates to time and how far back do you go? But then really is that time really that far back when it was just really so recent or even the fact that why I have this podcast in many ways I feel like as I'm in the present and even just thinking about guests that I'm booking for the future seasons Mm -hmm. at some point my bandwidth in engaging in this particular project is going to end but at some point someone is going to come back and feel like oh here is a digital archive of mm-hmm. all these really yeah. great people, because then this also captures a particular moment in time. Yeah. It's informing something else that's yet to come. The other point around consciousness and the creativity of folks who've experienced marginalization and oppression and subjugation. But mm-hmm. as long as you have your mind, there's power in managing and maintaining and being the master of your own mind and consciousness. That's why we're so creative and resilient, because it's mm-hmm. like you, you can trap my body but you can't track what I have up here in my mind. I can create creoles. Yes, yes. That decades from now, it's somehow in Webster Dictionary. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, I'm saying as you're thinking about and talking about how we're creating this archive, I'm thinking that the completion of this text is going to depend on an audience that does not yet exist. So even though what we say is in one way in the past, we are speaking and projecting a future, a future audience to whom we could be speaking, a future smile that could elicit or could be elicited from what we're saying, a future comment, a future question, a future critique that may in fact outlive our efforts, let alone us. We are in in essence performing the, the work of stardust. It really just becomes a space, a space that we can hold each other rather than be held, a space we can hold for each other rather than be held within. It is so good to be Black, so good to be understanding of, of that Blackness and the shifting shapes of that Blackness, the tides, the ebbs and flows of that Blackness, the poetics of it, the metaphysics of it. It's just like, yo, how, how is this not just the dopest thing? <laughs> Act three, where we land. 
So we've come to the part of the program where I would love for you to share with the audience what's your latest projects, what's your social media, if you have any upcoming talks, all the things for people to follow you and dig in deeper and learn more about you and your work. I'll start with my two major projects that I'm working on right now that I've been working on for some years. In one case is the Caribbean Memory Project. So people can visit CaribbeanMemoryProject.com. But that is an ongoing project. Born digital, so we've scanned stuff. It's a way that we try to engage not just luminaries, but really ordinary people like ourselves or the selves that we hope to be, but also ordinary folks like my parents and, you know, my grandparents and my partner's family to be able to engage who we are in these active ways. There's the NoWorks project, so people can go to noworksproject.com and they'll be able to download an essay that I wrote in reaction to and remembrance of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, as well as the really hundreds of people who have been murdered at the hands of extrajudicial violence and the extensions of the carceral and police state. The, the essay itself is called No Words. It's available for free download. And having the website as a place where people can come to really not just mourn together and grieve together and experience trauma, but really to find some semblance of safety in digital space and then how we can think of different ways to not just annotate but to articulate how we create how we think about ourselves what does it mean to operate in the absence of words so you'll find food recipes that I got chefs so we use food as a, as a way to make meaning we use painting catching black life drawings and that kind of thing so there's a range of opportunities for people to participate so we are looking for people who wish to participate in in the No Words Project to collaborate. Academic, non-academic, it doesn't matter. Um, in terms of my own personal projects, I'm working on a multimodal memoir that uses art, uses photography, uses different paperwork that I've been doing, ink blots, textual and formal deviances, poetry, the essay, the lyric essay. What I try to do is try to tell a Caribbean story in a Caribbean way, creolizing the different methods that I have at my disposal. And where can people follow you on social media? People can follow me on social media, Dr. Brown, D-R-B-R-O-W-N-E. You can follow me on Instagram, although I only have like one image up right now because I'm going through a transition phase with my with my archive. You can follow me on Twitter. They could also follow the Caribbean Memory Project, which is Caribbean Memory on Twitter. And I believe Caribbean Memory Project on Instagram. Sounds good. So <laughs> thank you so much, Kevin Adonis Brown, for being here and talking with us about your journey of belonging to Blackness. India, thank you so much for having me. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace. <laughs>